So I'd like to start with um, uh, posing a question. Um, what is the difference between um, uh, secular Buddhism and secularized Buddhism? That's, that's what I'd like to reflect on for a few minutes before <clears throat> we go into the, the topic of the, uh, of the four tasks. One thing I think that um, becomes uh, uh, undeniable when we look at the, uh, the recent uh, history of Buddhism, and by recent I mean within the last hundred or so years, Buddhism has a long history, so recent means a little more than one <coughs> might normally think, is that much of the Buddhism that we uh, encounter in the modern world is already... Um, secularized, but we may not notice that. Um, Buddhism has been trying to come to terms with modernity probably since the middle to the late 19th century. This is not a new thing at all. Um, might, we might even give the starting point as the Meiji Restoration in Japan, about 1852, when Japan opened up to the to the West, basically. And that then had knock-on effects of how it then reformed its Buddhism. Likewise, um, in Burma and in Sri Lanka, towards the end of the 19th century, uh, Buddhism uh, became part of the anti-colonial movement amongst the indigenous peoples of those lands. And part of that movement to reject the colonial power Britain, was to recover a sense of national identity uh, that was um, rooted in those traditions' own past. And in both Sri Lanka and in Burma, this entailed rethinking what they understood as Buddhism. And the movement that we now call Vipassana actually started then. The Vipassana movement uh, came to the fore in late 19th century Burma as a kind of reformed, uh, rationalized, and secularized version of Buddhism that would be able to stand up to the critique of Christianity and uh, rationalism that was the dominant uh, power of uh, the British. And so at that period, they stripped away a lot of the more overtly religious and perhaps superstitious elements of Buddhism. And in Burma in, particularly, in particular, uh, they began to identify Buddhism as a practice of meditation founded in mindfulness, uh, founded in concentration. And this became known as the Vipassana movement. And there are two main branches. One that comes to us through Goenka, who, who was taught by a man called Uba Kin, who was a layman, uh, and I'm sure most of you are aware of him and his work, which is now a global phenomenon. And then we have uh, the lineage which comes to us through Mahasi Sayadaw, which has been transmitted to people like Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, and many of the teachers who work here in Beatenburg, in Barry, in Spirit Rock, um, which is a different line, 
but it's through that line that we then, um, that then gave birth to the whole mindfulness movement. John Kabat-Zinn uh, studied with Joseph Goldstein and others at Barry and started this whole uh, movement. So, um, in other words, Vipassana strikes us sometimes as very uh, accessible, very stripped of uh, religiosity, um, and we might make the mistake of thinking that that's always been the case in Burma, but it hasn't. Uh, this is a reform movement, it's a, it's a response to the secular world, and as we know, it's been extraordinarily successful. I could give other examples. Another good example would be a Buddhist organization called the Soka Gakkai, uh, which some of you may have heard of. It's probably the largest Buddhist organization in the world. Um, they have a large center here in Britain. If you go back to London, between Reading and Paddington, look on the left at the village of Taplow, you'll see a huge stately home on the hill. That's their headquarters. Uh, there's about 20 million of them worldwide, almost entirely lay, uh, and again, a reform movement that started in the 1920s in Japan, initially as an educational movement, uh, that's now become uh, a very uh, um, powerful and widespread uh, practice of Buddhism based on the chanting of Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, which is the title of the Lotus Sutra in Sino-Japanese, and, and this movement, again, is deeply secularized. In fact, in 1992, the Soka Gakkai was excommunicated en masse from the religious uh, organization with which it was initially identified, the Nichiren Shoshu School. And it is now essentially a lay movement uh, concerned very much with uh, working in the world, uh, and improving people's uh, lot in the world. It's very big um, in the US, particularly amongst uh, minority groups, uh, blacks, Hispanics, and others, uh, people who otherwise wouldn't set foot in a Buddhist center. Uh, and they deliberately work with trying to improve people's quality of life. Another example would be the Shambhala training of Trungpa, uh, also started as an explicitly secular movement in the 1970s, although now it's become much more integrated with the more traditional Tibetan Buddhist approaches. So in other words, when we talk of uh, secular Buddhism, one could easily con confuse it with these secularized forms of traditional Buddhism. But by secular Buddhism, I mean something rather different. Now, although these different examples I gave, the Vipassana movement and so on, are very secular in tone, and um, they often make a point of downplaying the religious elements in their centers. You don't know how many meetings we had to get these two figures in this room. <laughs> Huge arguments. Um, I don't want to get into that. But um, what that points to is that there's still a certain ambivalence um, uh, about the relationship between, say, the Vipassana movement and, in England in particular, the monks and the nuns at Amarawati and Chithurst. We realize we're part of the same kind of movement. There's lots of crossover, 
But, you know, where do we really stand with them? And I also think that um, although the forms of much modern Buddhism have a secular feel to them, there hasn't been a great deal of, of, of radical rethinking of many of the traditional Buddhist um, uh, uh, beliefs. And so although you might get a secular approach that looks very sort of user-friendly in the 21st century, if you scratch the surface, you'll find that at the back of it, most of the people believe in reincarnation and different realms of existence and karma and all of the traditional Buddhist beliefs. In other words, in some sense, it's a, an adaptation to modern needs, uh, primarily, but it hasn't, in, I, I feel, uh, really uh, applied a secular critique to some of the basic Buddhist doctrines and beliefs. So the secular Buddhism that I am trying to uh, imagine um, would go further than just the secularization of Buddhism. And it would try to get back to the actual root sources of the tradition and re-articulate or rethink the Dharma from the ground up. And in that sense, when I use the word secular, I don't mean it's Buddhism that has been secularized. But it's a bit like when we talk of Tibetan Buddhism or Chinese Buddhism. The, the qualifier, Tibetan or Chinese, simply describes, is a way of describing, the kind of Dharma that evolved in the country called Tibet, or the kind of Dharma that evolved in the country called China. And possibly secular Buddhism is the kind of dharma that might evolve on planet secular. In other words, in, in our secular world, which is no longer defined by national boundaries. And I think it's also a mistake to call it Western. Because it's not just a phenomenon that's going on in the West at all. In fact, the examples I've given are actually more as much Asian as Western. So it's really the form of dharma uh, that may begin to, uh, uh, to articulate itself, that to find forms, find language, that is uh, triggered by a conversation with the secular culture and the secular world. When we were in Korea last autumn, Martin and I, um, <coughs> It, again, was very clear that in the 30 years since we lived there in the monastery, Korean Buddhism has undergone a, a considerable processes of secularization. Um, but what's interesting is that I found that uh, talking to, a, say, a contemporary Korean Buddhist monk or, or layperson, I become aware that they're coming to terms with secularity, but I also become aware that I'm a secular person trying to come to terms with Buddhism. And in, in some ways, although we have common concerns, I think in some ways we're going in opposite directions. I'm a Westerner trying to figure out what it means to be a Buddhist. They're Buddhists trying to figure out what it means to be secular. And I think that's an important distinction that perhaps 
defines the difference between secularized Buddhism and secular Buddhism. But in practice, of course, you can't really separate the two. Because in what's really going on, at its best, um, is an open-ended conversation between two partners, rather than one partner, Buddhism or secularity, trying to impose its agenda on the other. Um, another philosopher, this one, a Scottish philosopher called Alistair MacIntyre, um, in his book called After Virtue, um, he says, a living tradition is an historically extended, socially embodied argument. And an argument about the goods that constitute the tradition. In other words, for a tradition to be alive, to be a living tradition, it's not interested in just preserving itself. In fact, as soon as you hear the word preservation, your alarm bell should start ringing. We only tend to preserve things that are already dead, like apples and plums and stuff. And if we want to preserve Buddhism, it's basically like putting it in a jar of, of, uh, of preservative. A living tradition, I think, is one that's continuously engaged in a conversation, in a dialogue with its own past. And I hope that um, uh, what we're doing here uh, is really thought of as a conversation with the past of the tradition, going back to the early texts, for example, and not an attempt to uh, poo-poo uh, traditional Buddhism and replace it with something else. I don't see it that way. I think really it's a, it's a dialogue that's going on, the outcome of which... Um, is entirely uncertain. So I think one needs a degree of humility here. Uh, and if at times I sound a little bit dogmatic myself, then um, uh, I apologize. <laughs> it's just a, a bad habit I have. So the, um, the, the way that I'm approaching this is, is should be clear, really, from what we've done so far, um, is, to, is to really try to sort of um, tap into what seems to be original and distinctive in what the Buddha taught. When we read these early texts, we find a lot of things in the mouth of the Buddha that could just as well have been said by a Brahmin priest or a Jain monk or some other ascetic or wanderer of that time. As I mentioned, I think, yesterday afternoon, um, most Indian traditions of this degree of antiquity started out inhabiting the same thought world. In other words, they saw the world uh, quite unquestioning, they, they didn't question it, it was just the taken-for-granted understanding of what the world was like in their times. And that's very difficult for us to recover. We have an, an, another taken-for-granted view of what the world is like, the one that we've been informed through our education, through our culture, through our history, 
And we just take it for granted that the world originated out of the Big Bang and we're a globe of rock and water floating in space going around the sun. We don't question this, even though we don't actually you know, really know these things for sure. It, it, they are beliefs. But they're not beliefs we've sort of struggled to accept. They're beliefs that saturate our whole cultural sphere. So if I use examples, for example, if I use examples in a talk about DNA or neural networks or whatever, people just go, oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Although we have no real, unless we're specialists in those fields, we probably have only the fuzziest understanding of what we're talking about. But it doesn't bother us. It's not, it's not, not an issue. It's, it's assumed to be the case. And I think we have to think of things like rebirth and karma and the ending of the cycle of birth and death and liberation from the end of suffering. These are the key tropes in the assumed worldview of 5th century BC India. In other words, they're not specific to what the Buddha taught. And possibly the first step in trying to get clear as to what uh, was distinctive in the Buddha's teaching is to put to one side all of the things that he's said to say uh, that are simply an expression of the worldview of that time. And as one does this, a number of features begin to, to sort of come to the surface. The first is the emphasis on conditionality. This is a very unusual idea uh, at the Buddha's time. Uh, and to, to think of conditionality or cause and effect or uh, dependent origination um, as somehow um, uh, the very ground of life beyond which there is nothing else, uh, that's uh, an idea that is, is quite radical in 5th century BC India, which tended to see um, conditionality as, as, as really the sort of the, the illusory surface of reality below, beneath which there is an ultimate truth, an absolute truth. You call it God. You might call it emptiness. But conditionality... Uh, that's something very fluid, something in a way that's imperfect, constantly changing, uh, mutating, uh, and so on and so forth. And it's very close to what we would understand today with the word life. So the Buddha highlights this, and we saw a quote the other day where, where it said that the, the person who sees conditionality sees the Dharma, the person who sees the Dharma sees conditionality. The second thing I feel that is very distinctive about what the Buddha taught, that you can't derive from the India of his time, is this idea of the four tasks. And again, I say, I emphasize the four tasks rather than the four truths, because the four truths you probably can derive from the Buddha's time. Whereas when we think of this in terms of tasks, um, we've got something a little bit different to what you'll find in Hinduism or Jainism or anywhere else. It seems to be an approach to life that has to do with coming to terms with one's situation, um, letting go of what of the reactivity that hinders us from engaging with the world 
in a responsive, in a wise, in a compassionate way. And that being the real core of what the practice is all about. And this, as I said yesterday, comes down to understanding the distinctiveness of the Buddha's teaching as being essentially a, a task-based ethics rather than a truth-based metaphysics. That, although that's a rather technical language, I think it expresses quite clearly that what was distinctive in the Buddha's teaching was his ethics. What is the purpose of life? How can we live in a way whereby we can realize those purposes in a way that allows us to flourish optimally as persons and communities without having to uh, assume certain uh, religious or metaphysical beliefs, that that just becomes entirely irrelevant. Another aspect of the teaching of the Buddha that is uh, highly distinctive is his whole approach to meditation, uh, and particularly the emphasis on sati, mindfulness. Because mindfulness is not a practice that's uh, comparable, say, to these deep absorbed where you go into the very core of your innermost experience and get into highly concentrated states, although Buddhism does have that. What's distinctive about mindfulness is that it's a meditation that is focused on the phenomenal world, the world of your breath, your body, your feelings, your perceptions, your consciousness, and what is called Dhamma, everything. The, all the, the totality of your phenomenal experience. Phenomenal means which appears. It's not about trying to pierce through the veil of appearance in order to get at some higher truth. Although Buddhism as a religion did mutate into that kind of uh, beast. And you get ultimate truth, relative truth and so on, which are quite alien to the early discourses. They never appear, those terms. So you have um, a meditation that's really a, a practice of attention, of paying close, um, focused attention to the actual experience that's unfolding in the moment. Uh, in, in, if you look at how the word sati or shmurti is used in pre-Buddhist texts, uh, you find it, for example, in the Vedas and the Upanishads. And Shmurti means um, the practice of remembering the, um, the hymns and the discourses that have been passed down from antiquity. It's about recalling uh, and remembering texts. And again, the Buddha takes this term, which still means remembering, but it's remembering to be aware of what's going on now which is, again, a complete shift from what was found elsewhere. And the fourth point that I think that marks the Buddha's teaching out as distinctive is his emphasis on self-reliance, not becoming dependent upon a guru or a teacher or a body of sacred texts, but becoming um, independent. You may refer to these texts, you might greatly value the teacher that you work with, but the purpose of those 
studies and trainings is to be able to stand on your own feet, to become a-para-pachaya, independent of others in the teaching. And again, most religions don't, uh, not, you know, many religions, I won't say most, um, want to uh, really encourage a sense of dependence. Islam, for example, means surrender. You're surrendering to the will of God. That's not an idea that's uh, compatible with the early Buddhist tradition. So the, um, uh, as a sort of framework for rethinking what the Dharma is about, it's useful to have a certain, uh, a certain outline to guide one's approach. And I find to take these four uh, basic distinctive ideas is a good sort of foundation on which to then build on that um, uh, a vision of what the Dharma is about that's both rooted in what's distinctively Buddhist but is also um, concerned with expressing and explaining and giving form uh, to these things in the world we live today. So as part of this process, um, we're at the moment uh, considering uh, a, a fairly uh, fundamental rethink of the Four Noble Truths. And in fact, we're, I'm dropping the whole idea of Noble Truths and thinking of these four as tasks, uh, as things to do, not things to believe. And um, this, I think, makes an extraordinary difference to our practice. Again, it may not be that we feel that we've been, uh, if we've been part of some traditional Buddhist organization, I'm not suggesting that you know, we are deliberately indoctrinated by all kinds of spurious ideas. Um, I think we take on board those ideas because they're simply part of the cultural religious environment that operates in those settings. You kind of absorb them without necessarily being told you have to believe this or that. But what you'll find in a traditional, more conservative, uh, maybe more orthodox form of Buddhism um, is that if you start having ideas and start expressing them that don't fit with the uh, traditional view, you find yourself getting into trouble. So um, the first of these tasks is that of um, comprehending or embracing dukkha. And as we saw yesterday, dukkha doesn't just mean pain or suffering. Dukkha actually is shorthand for the totality of experience. In other words, um, uh, it's... It has to do with what we, with our sensory experience. It has to do with our emotional life. It has to do with um, our, you know, our thoughts, our, our feelings. Um, it has to do with our relationship with other people. It has to do with our own birth and death. And the word dukkha is not, uh, as it were, uh, trying to claim. Everything is suffering. That, I think, is a mistake. 
But what it is flagging is the fact that life, even in its most joyous moments, has a tragic dimension. And I think a good example of that um, would be um, going to see a Shakespeare play, particularly a tragedy, King Lear or Macbeth or Hamlet, that what is, in a sense, strange, uh, superficially at least, is that we enjoy going to watch a tragedy. And if the play is well performed, um, it doesn't make us gloomy and depressed, even though it's about the extremes of human suffering, but it actually enriches our experience. It brings us into, it allows a reflection on the depths of human life. And we find that enriching, we find it fulfilling, we find it inspiring. And this, I think, is the beauty of a lot of great art, is that it uh, transforms um, what we might just call mundane experience and illuminates it from a perspective that enables us really to uh, be almost awestruck by uh, the sheer sublimity uh, of life itself. So in other words, dukkha, suffering, um, is a way of just highlighting that when we meditate, when we ask ourselves what our real ultimate concerns are, um, that we inevitably uh, come into a relationship with the tragic dimension of life. But we must be careful not to think that that colors everything in a, with a sort of dark, gloomy veil. Paradoxically, I think it actually makes us feel more fully alive. And um, it's often pointed out that when you meditate on death, for example, or when you're in the presence of a loved one who has died, although that's deeply distressing um, and uh, painful, it also um, somehow makes you aware that you, know, you are alive, that others are still living, and life is a, is a wonderful gift. And the, the beauty of life, uh, the, the, the extraordinary, mysterious nature of life, uh, is what it is precisely because it will end that it's fragile, that it's vulnerable, that it breaks down. So instead of carving the world into suffering and pleasure, or good and bad, we realize that we can't really separate these two poles, as it were. And yet consumerist capitalism is basically a culture that seeks by all means to banish pain and suffering from life. There's an aversion, a fear, a refusal to acknowledge um, that this is an integral part of life. We have this unconscious fantasy that if we get our cards right, if we organize our world in the right way, then we won't suffer anymore. But that's highly delusive. And yet, you know, we're very much caught up in a culture that is pushing that message either subliminally through advertising or overtly through 
um, you know, popular literature and magazines and everything else, uh, that really has an enormous power in our world today. So the first uh, task of these four tasks is to do something which goes completely in the opposite direction from the imperatives of consumerism. Instead of saying no to suffering, it's saying yes to suffering. Uh, it's embracing suffering. Uh, and I do think this is one of the most profound teachings of the Buddha. Dukkha parinya, embracing, comprehending, um, uh, engaging with life uh, in an open-hearted, open-minded, clear-sighted way, being willing to accept the condition we are in rather than constantly trying to deny it. Now what we then notice um, is that um, experience is not just a one-way street. It's not just me relating to experience, but experience provokes reactions within me. And these reactions, uh, reactivity as I like to call it, is what the Buddha calls a craving. But again, I don't think craving's a particularly useful translation. It's an accurate translation, but it's not a very useful one. And um, as I pointed out yesterday, uh, reactivity is what rises up within us through our encounter with life and the world and ourselves. And it's what we spend a lot of time witnessing or getting frustrated about when we try and meditate. Lots of other stuff comes up. It sometimes seems that meditation almost provokes greater reactivity. People on a, I often hear in interviews, people say, this meditation makes me an awful lot more angry than I used to be. <laughs> this meditation makes me terribly, terribly distracted. I didn't used to be distracted until I started meditating. Over time, you realize actually that you probably have been distracted an awful lot in your life, but because you were distracted, you didn't notice. <laughs> so when you start meditating, you try deliberately not to be distracted. You sort of get a rather, um, a sometimes rather uncomfortable uh, recognition of how distracted you are. And so the task here... Oh, yes, one other thing I want to say. The Buddha describes metaphorically reactivity, which are technically called greed, hatred, delusion. He calls them the three fires. The three fires. And again, this metaphor supports the idea of reactivity. In other words, when we encounter something unpleasant or something pleasant there is a reaction in ourselves that flares up like a fire. It's as though we strike a match and whoosh. Oh, fire of anger, fire of desire. Uh, it, it flares up. And what, if we follow that metaphor through, because we're so often under the, you know, we're so, we're so much part of this reactive system, our organism, uh, that we go along with it, and in doing so, we identify with it, and in doing that, we actually fuel it. It's like we throw petrol onto it. 
and it flares up even more. So this too, I think, supports the idea that um, the second task is not about sort of abandoning craving, which sounds very ascetic and monastic perhaps, but it's about letting go of reactivity. Um, the question yesterday about the word letting go, I looked it up in the Pali English Dictionary. Um, pajahati is the word. means, And this is how it defines it, to give up, to renounce, to forsake, to abandon, to eliminate, to let go, to get rid of. So it uses the word let go, or even though this was published in 1924, we think of letting go as a kind of post-60s kind of being cool idea. But actually, there it is in the dictionary. But again, none of these words really tell us a great deal. Um, the real question is, how do you let go? How do you let go? Uh, letting go is not um, about sort of uh, you know, suppressing something or thinking, you know, I'm a spiritual person, I shouldn't feel this way, and trying to block it out, or trying to pretend it's not happening. Uh, there is, I think, an enormous part of this practice which has to do with a very deep self-acceptance, being able to accept the most unacceptable things within ourselves. Maybe it's a violent fantasy, maybe it's some... Uh, some really sort of incredibly selfish feelings we might experience at times, and not to think, oh my God, that's terrible, that's bad. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I'm a Buddhist or a Christian or whatever. And then we feel guilty. And, um, you know, we feel all sort of screwed up inside. But letting go means... Uh, actually opening your heart to and seeing these things for what they are. And in that sense, letting go and embracing the first and the second tasks kind of blur into each other. And in many ways I find it more helpful not to speak of the four tasks because that suggests there are four separate things you do one after the other, perhaps, as a kind of training exercise. And that might be useful as a sort of um, as a didactic or as a pedagogic device. But it might be more useful to think of us engaged in a fourfold task, a fourfold task, in which the embrace of the world is also a release of the world that embracing, in this sense, also means letting go. And in that sense, we might understand it, for example, by, you know, if we really accept the condition we're in, if we really accept birth, sickness, aging, and death, and say, yes, that is my human uh, destiny. If we really had embraced that, in itself, a lot of the pettiness of our minds would kind of fall away of its own accord. It's like when you're at a, let's say, a funeral or a wake and you're mourning a person who's died. You find yourself with people who otherwise you'd rather not spend too much time with. 
uh, in a way that's perfectly okay. It's as though a lot of your preoccupations with my ego and uh, my likes and my dislikes and what that person did and said in the past, all of that kind of falls away. You're un united in something deeper, something more um, uh, trans transcendentally human, namely birth, sickness, aging, and in this case, death. The, 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 to embrace life in this way already has an effect on how you react. And so I think that in some ways embracing life is a precondition for letting go of reactivity. If we saw the world differently, and I don't mean just conceptually, but from the heart with the, in the body, you'd start reacting differently. But also, in a more sort of you know, immediate pragmatic sense, when in meditation, for example, we witness the rising up of this stuff, we have a choice. We can go along with it, or we can get caught up in it, and at times, you might actually find yourself sort of sitting on the fence. This is a really nice fantasy that I've just launched here, or this is a brilliant opening to what will become one of the 21st century's greatest works of poetry. <laughs> now, do I just let that go? Wait a minute, I've got, you know, I've got some God, <clears throat> world's literature to consider. That's far more important than just letting go of a thought. But that's a dilemma I suspect we all uh, confront, you know, in a, you know, pretty, a lot of sittings. What do we do? We, 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 we develop that idea, or do we let it go? And again, I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer here. That's, I think, the judgment call that each of us will make. But if we're you know, committing ourselves to engage in this practice, then perhaps the priority, at least here, when we're sitting and walking, is to explore what it's like to let go. <coughs> to not let ourselves get caught up in a train of thought or to indulge in a particular feeling or emotion, but just to see it for what it is, to accept it for what it is, to not demonize it, not to, um, not to amplify it, not to proliferate, as, as they say in the texts, but just to let it be and allow ourselves to just see what's going on. And if we do that, what we'll notice is that over time, it may not happen immediately, over time, if these reactions are just left to their own devices, a bit like a, a flame that's been lit, if you don't put any more fuel on, it'll just die down, and it'll go out. And in other words, letting go is, 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 is not a, a proactive engagement, it's actually having the, the inner strength and clarity to just let things die down of their own accord. And that dying down, that coming to, to cease or stop, that is nirvana, I would argue. Uh, that is nirvana. And the, the third task is to behold nirvana to behold uh, the ceasing, 
So what does that mean? Again, I've, I've used to translate this as experience the ceasing, but I'd rather actually stick more closely to the word in Pali, which is sachi karoti. Sachi, achi, is an old Indian word for the eyes. And karoti is a, a, an active doing word, like it's the same, it's a cognate, I think, of kara or karma, to act. So it's to do with the... To, when I was a teenager, um, we, uh, in our popular slang in Hertfordshire, we, we would, you, you would eye people up especially attractive members of the opposite sex, you eye them up. And, and in a way, it's a bit like that. You're eyeing them. But possibly behold is the right word, or at least one possibility, to behold something. Uh, and what we behold here is the ceasing of reactivity. And as I mentioned yesterday afternoon, when the Buddha dis uh, uh, defines ceasing, niroda, he says it is the ceasing of reactivity. He doesn't say it's the ending of suffering. He says it's the ceasing of reactivity. That nirvana is the, uh, are, are those moments when reactivity has stopped. And nirvana is synonymous to the deathless. Nirvana is synonymous with the unconditioned. Now again, in a lot of Buddhist literature in English, um, the unconditioned and the deathless and nirvana are almost invariably written with a capital D, a capital U, and a capital N. And they're usually prefixed with a, def with a definite article, the. The unconditioned. Capital U, the deathless. Why do, why do we do that? There's no grounds for that in Pali or Sanskrit or Chinese or Tibetan at all. No definite articles, no capital letters. And yet translators and teachers take it upon themselves to add these signifiers. Why? Well, I can't speak for all of them, but my hunch is because we want to set something up as a privileged religious object something that has a greater ontological weight than ordinary things, something terribly special, something by understanding which will attain enlightenment or salvation. But I think the, the typography um, gives the game away. And so I try my best in my own translations to drop that sort of habit. Pri privileging certain key words. So, beholding nirvana, beholding the unconditioned, beholding the deathless, is um, a way of talking about remaining in a contemplative uh, frame of mind in which we positively affirm and valorize the stopping of reactivity. So when it actually stops, instead of saying, oh, wow, thank God that's over, let's get on with something more interesting, when that stops, you actually spend time consciously attending to what it feels like for those reactions not to be active, 
I know that sounds a little bit too many negatives. But that, I think, is what's going on. And sachi karoti, beholding, is not a term that you find very often in the discourses. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as realize, which I don't like. I think, A, it's ambiguous to realize, and B, it doesn't capture the idea of beholding something with your eyes, seeing it clearly. So part of our meditation here is when the mind is calm and still, and there may be a few moments when that happens, to actually uh, consciously valorize that experience. Allow yourself to really feel it, to really settle into it, to really enjoy it. I'll read you some... Uh, well, actually, there's a, there's a couple of texts I'd like to read about this. Um, the first is a dialogue between the Buddha and um, a person called Topknot Sivaka. Molia Sivaka. Molia means a, a topknot. A shinyong, or you know, like sadhus in India, or you know, people who have you know the dreadlock type hair stuff. Anyway, he would probably looked a bit like that, which means he wasn't a Buddhist. And he came to the Buddha and said, "You talk of the clearly visible Dharma. In what respects is the Dharma clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting?" to be personally sensed by the wise. That's a very common phrase. But the point that Sivaka is interested in is, what do you mean clearly visible? And rather than give Sivaka an answer, the Buddha poses to him a question. He says, let me ask you about this. What do you think, Sivaka, when there is greed within you, do you know there is greed within me? And when there is no greed within you, do you know, ah, there's no greed within me? And Sivaka says, yes, of course. And then, in the rather tedious manner of the suttas, the same question is then asked regarding hatred, uh, delusion, and those qualities of mind associated with greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, the whole range of what I'm calling reactivity. He's saying to Sivaka, you know when these things are flaring up? Yes. And you know when they're not flaring up? Yes. And the conclusion is, uh, this is the Buddha speaking, it is in this way that the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Now there's another passage in a dialogue with a, a Brahmin called Jangusoni, where instead of the Dharma, the Buddha substitutes the word Nirvana. Nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. And we saw in the text I read out a couple of days ago that when the Buddha describes his awakening, he talks of it as being a twofold ground. One ground is conditionality, the other ground is nirvana. So, nirvana, therefore, is actually something here and now. Nirvana opens up or becomes visible whenever reactivity dies down. 
It's almost as simple as that. Nirvana's not, I mean, Nirvana has been ratcheted up to almost impossible heights of, of transcendence and uh, eternity and uh, mysticism and so on. But here, Nirvana is simply a possibility. And it's what you can see for yourself. It's clearly visible. It can be beheld when these emotions and reactions die down. And the, one of the five ascetics who listened to the Buddha's discourse on these four tasks um, understood what was being said. Uh, it says, his Dharma eye opened. In other words, he saw the Dharma. And as an expression of his insight, uh, he made this famous uh, statement. He says, whatever is subject to arising that is subject to ceasing. And the word arising is the same word, samudaya, the arising of reactivity. And the word ceasing, niroda, is the same word as the ceasing of reactivity. And that was what gave him his breakthrough. The realization that whatever, in ordinary idiomatic English, whatever goes up comes down. Whatever arises, ceases. It's so ob it's, it's almost banal. But if it's actually experienced um, in the very heart of your own life, it can be profoundly transformative. And the, the transformation has to do with the fact that um, you open yourself to another space of possibility in which you are free, and again, this is an expression, you know, I am freed, is an expression used repeatedly in these moments, and what it means is you're free to live unconditioned by reactivity. The reactivity has stopped in that moment, you can now make a choice, you can say something, do something, think something, that is no longer uh, in the clutches or determined by those reactive patterns. It doesn't mean that once you've seen the stopping of reactivity, it'll never rise up again. Of course it does. That's simply the kind of organism, the kind of being we are. It'll keep coming up. But it's only because it comes up that we can allow it to just come to rest, to cease, and that opens up a space from which we can then uh, live in the world unconditioned by those reactive patterns. And that living in the world unconditioned by those reactive patterns is the fourth task, the cultivation of a way of life. We bring that way of life into being. Now there's a, a passage I found quite recently actually um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses, and for those of you who are interested, it's 647, section 6, number 47. And this is a very curious passage. Um, the Buddha lists 21 uh, householders and lay followers and describes each one of them in identical terms. 
And this is how he describes them. I'm going to be using the name of one of them, Jivaka. Jivaka was the Buddha's doctor. And he says, monks, possessing six qualities, the householder Jivaka has found fulfillment in the Tathagata, the Tathagata, the, the true person, become a seer of the deathless, one who goes about having beheld the deathless. And he repeats the same phrase with regard to another 20 uh, lay people. Uh, and what are the six uh, qualities? Their lucid confidence in the Buddha or awakening, lucid confidence in the Dharma, lucid confidence in the community, noble virtue, noble understanding, and noble liberation. Now this passage is, has given orthodoxy problems because these are the kinds of qualities that one tends to associate with the arhant, the one who lives their life from the perspective of the deathless. But here, it's applied to people, in this case, a doctor. Uh, you get businessmen, uh, government officials in, the, in, in this list as well. So, and, and what's curious, or what I find uh, striking, this is actually how I stumbled across it, is that he uses this word, word sachikaroti, behold. That Jivakar and these others have, be, uh, have beheld the deathless. They've seen it with their own eyes. And that is not in itself the goal of the practice, but it's having seen and beheld the deathless that one then goes about in the world. And the word he uses for go about in the world is iriyati. And iriya uh, means posture, physical posture. But it's a verb form. So in other words, you stand, walk, lie, and uh, sit from the perspective of the deathless. In other words, the body. You bodily get about in the world from the perspective of non-reactivity, which is known as the deathless and the unconditioned and nirvana. So nirvana here is not the goal of the Eightfold Path, as it traditionally is presented, but it is actually the source, uh, the fount, the origin of the Eightfold Path, of this way of living in the world. And this way of living in the world is explicitly embodied. Now all of this, I think, turns a lot of the rather more spiritual, ascetic, monastic Buddhism a bit on its head. Here we have people going around, doing their daily work, living in quite stressful situations, but doing so from the perspective of non-reactivity. And to conclude... I'll read another short passage, which I've, thought I've kind of abbreviated, um, that comes at the very end of the, of the ones uh, in the numerical discourses. This is for the people who want to jot this down. This is Anguttara Nikaya 1, chapter 1, Numbers 
616, 620, 623, 626, and 627. There's a lot of suttas in the Anguttara Nikaya. Each sutta's one verse. So these are just a few of them. Those who enjoy the deathless enjoy being mindful of the body. Those who care for the deathless, same word care as we looked at the other day, care about being mindful of the body. Those who cultivate the deathless, same word as in the fourth task, cultivate the path, cultivate being mindful of the body. Those who comprehend the deathless, same word as embrace, uh, parinya, those who comprehend the deathless comprehend being mindful of the body. And those who behold the deathless, same word, sachikaroti, behold being mindful of the body. So there we actually have three of the four tasks, comprehending, uh, beholding, and cultivating um, in relation to the deathless, which means the, uh, the falling away, the stopping, even momentarily, of reactivity. And the sight in which that occurs is not the mind, the spirit, but the body. Iriati goes about in the world in the different postures, having beheld the deathless. There's something very explicit here that the so-called highest value of the Dharma, <coughs> Nirvana, is actually uh, uh, experienced in an embodied state by being mindful of the body. Uh, again, in the, there's another text where the Buddha's talking about the unconditioned, and he says, I will teach you the unconditioned, and the path leading to the unconditioned. What is the unconditioned? The unconditioned is the absence of greed, of hatred, confusion. In other words, it's the falling away of reactivity. And what is the path to the unconditioned? It is mindfulness of the body. So all of these passages, albeit scattered in different parts of the canon, all seem to converge in the same idea or in the same core ideas, the ideas of care, the ideas of embracing, beholding, cultivating. And of course, what is central to that is the idea of letting go, of not getting caught up in reactivity, which is the precondition for it coming to a stop of its own accord. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.